Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So, Kellen, this is part two of our healthcare conversation. Last week, we talked about the ways in which the healthcare system in the U.S. has sort of been messed up all along, why it was built unsustainably, in what ways it's sort of always been destined to fail. And not just destined to fail, it's kind of always failed, right? In terms of comparing it to other countries and the way that people receive their healthcare, the U.S. simply is not good at it. That was covered last week. This week, what we're covering is the path that our healthcare system is on, some of the extra difficult circumstances surrounding our current environment in healthcare, and how much of that has just changed in the last few years. Just like last episode, today's episode is not meant to be an exhaustive list or an all-inclusive list of everything that's happening, but I do think we are going to cover a lot of really interesting aspects today that are going to show why the healthcare system is continuing to weaken and at a pretty rapid pace. Yeah, and when you mentioned that the healthcare system was kind of set up in a way that is unsustainable or that is destined to fail, I don't think that's the case if things were to just remain status quo. I think it's the fact that it's set up the way that it is and we're seeing collapse progress. And this is one of those things where failure of the healthcare system progresses collapse and progression of collapse accelerates failure of the healthcare system, right? It's kind of a feedback loop. And yeah, talking about what's wrong with the healthcare system, like we did last week, lays a really good foundation for this. I don't think we plan to go really deep here on any one of the things that we're going to mention, 
but I think it will be helpful for anyone listening to kind of hear it compiled, right? A, a list or a collection of ways in which we are seeing evidence of a gradually collapsing healthcare system. Yeah, so last week we talked about vulnerabilities in the system, things like the way insurance is handled in the U.S., high costs, inefficiencies, medical errors, and things like that. This week we're talking about how those vulnerabilities are sort of being exploited, right? If the system was weak before, there are things happening now that because of those weaknesses have the sort of capability to really break the system. So as an example, we'll just jump into one here. And that is the current staffing issues that we're seeing widely throughout the healthcare system. This has been a conversation in mainstream media for the last couple of years, specifically since the pandemic. Though this is something that's been going on far before the pandemic. It was getting worse over time, but the pandemic really took that and accelerated it and made those vulnerabilities known to to everybody because of the effects that it had. Well, I think it's good that you do bring up the pandemic, even though this was an issue before and it's an issue after. And it's because with a lot of these issues that we will be discussing, the pandemic is a really good example. It's kind of a case study in what happens to those vulnerabilities when something big hits. So you may remember that at certain points when COVID would spike, many hospitals were either close to capacity or at capacity, some were over capacity. And that meant that if you had a heart attack or you were in a car crash or you had a stroke or whatever, you might not be able to get an ICU bed. And then if you could, you would have this strained physician and nurses that are already trying to run around and take care of so many other patients. At one point, there were so many reports of ambulances just waiting in long lines trying to get into the hospital. And so with this big surge on the healthcare system, one of the side effects of it was an incredible amount of burnout. There was an article that was published January of this year that says, a recent survey suggests that one in five healthcare workers has left their jobs since the start of the pandemic. In addition, the Bureau of Labor Statistics found that hospital employment decreased by almost 100,000 from February 2020 to September 2021. Yeah, that's an incredible number. And you're talking about two different things here. So on one hand, you're talking about an increase in the number of patients due to COVID-19. And on the other hand, you're talking about a decrease in the number of healthcare staff available. Yeah, it was kind of a perfect storm in which demand vastly overexceeded supply. Yeah, exactly. And it, so before the pandemic started, supply was already starting to dwindle, right? And maybe demand wasn't changing too much meaning the number of patients in hospitals was staying relatively stable and slowly the number of healthcare staff was decreasing. And, and there was a lot of reasons for that. You know, healthcare professionals were feeling burned out from inefficient systems like we talked about last, last week, the lack of transparency in how they're being paid, frustrations with insurance companies, rising education debts. They had that increased risk of being sued, a disconnect between healthcare professionals themselves and administrative staff. So there was all these reasons already building up before the pandemic started. As a matter of fact, studies suggested, and these were studies done before the pandemic started, that the U.S. was expected to have a deficit of more than 120,000 doctors by 2032. So they were looking ahead, you know, 
13, 14, 15 years and saying, we need to have 120,000 more doctors than we think we're going to have because they're leaving the profession. And then, like you said, it's this perfect storm of the pandemic happening, this huge increase in patients, all of the issues that healthcare staff had been facing before intensified. And so the burnout intensified, which meant that more left. And that resulted in a positive feedback loop because as more left, the ones who remained were left with more weight on their own shoulders, more responsibilities. There were horror stories on the nursing subreddit about, you know, ER nurses left in an entire ER floor basically to themselves because everyone else had quit or they had COVID or whatever it was. And the patient to nurse ratios were just unacceptably high. A lot of those nurses started switching professions or doctors switching professions. Many nurses went to traveling companies, right, that were paying more and some healthcare professionals just retired early. I know this was especially hard hit in nursing care and community homes, elderly care facilities. One study stated that levels as of July 2022, so just a few months ago, were 12 and 13% lower than expected and were two years later since the pandemic began. Quits among healthcare workers has been high with between 20 and 30% higher numbers of quits than before the pandemic started. So the quits were already happening. They were already increasing. Now they're between 20 and 30% higher, depending on the type of healthcare staff that we're talking about. And obviously, this isn't something that's completely unique to healthcare. We're in the middle of what they're calling the great resignation, right? Where there are huge numbers of people quitting across lots of different industries. But healthcare was no exception to that. And the fact that it was already happening makes the situation that much more critical. Yeah, so it's interesting to think that already staffing was not in a good spot, but all those factors you mentioned and the surge with COVID and, and the burnout and the resignation left us in a worse place than we were even before. And as we look to the future, there is a shifting patient population. Just the demographic within the U.S., uh, we're getting more and more geriatric patients who typically have a lot of additional healthcare needs. And what I was surprised to find out is that 52% of the active physician workforce is 55 years or older. And so there's an expectation that there's going to be a mass exodus simply due to retirement. So as demand increases, it looks like supply is going to decrease. Obviously, COVID was a unique situation, uh, you know, an outlier. But as we look forward and we're seeing these trends already, and yet we can anticipate more heat waves and all of the health-related issues there, food shortages and what that does, you know, a lack of nutrition, increased poverty, extreme weather events, microplastics. Yeah, there's all of these factors. Even we're seeing an increase of infectious diseases, and all of this is combining to put a greater strain on an already strained workforce in the healthcare industry. Yeah, when you see what COVID did to the healthcare industry at its peak, and then you think of what the future is going to be like, and that is pretty terrifying. I don't imagine that there's going to be some huge turnaround where suddenly everyone's signing up to be a nurse or a doctor, especially as they're hearing how sort of miserable it's been for so many through the pandemic. A lot of the issues with the healthcare system are coming to light. 
and it doesn't seem that we're taking the necessary steps to fix that. And so I could see that being a big turnoff for students, you know, Gen Z and younger kids now who are considering what occupation to have. If we have this mass exodus and continued staffing shortages and we're not replacing them with an influx of new doctors and nurses. And when you think about how long it takes to get through school and train them, I think we're in for, you know, in the very near term and into the next several decades, a world of hurt when it comes to healthcare professionals. And that's kind of scary to think that people are going to be in need and they're going to turn somewhere for help. And so I could also see that leading to a huge influx of sort of pseudo care, pseudo science, you know, snake oil salesmen and, and people who are selling all sorts of fixes that perhaps aren't real. You know, anything that people can do to make a buck and someone will surely take advantage of the millions of people who will be in need who aren't able to receive proper care. You bring up a really good point because if suddenly next year we have a huge deficit in healthcare staff, there's not a lot we can do to just suddenly fix that problem. There's a lot of lead time in order to be able to work somebody through that funnel and get them to be a highly qualified healthcare professional. And you mentioned that a lot of nurses quit their job in order to become traveling nurses because they would get paid so much more. We've got a statement here from an article that says a report released by the AHA on Monday said that labor costs per patient jumped by 19% in 2021 from 2019. High cost traveling nurses made up 39% of hospital nursing budgets in January 2022. And I know my sister-in-law is a nurse. She was so frustrated during the pandemic that there were other nurses working right alongside her doing the exact same work that were making so much more money. So she quit and became a traveling nurse in order to make a lot more money. And that, in addition to some other things I think we'll touch on, has caused inflation in the cost of healthcare. All of that, while in, in June 2022, 61% of Americans were living paycheck to paycheck. And some studies have been done on the leading causes of bankruptcy in the U.S. 59% of respondents in some of these larger surveys have cited medical expenses as a major factor in their filing for bankruptcy. The number one reason for bankruptcy is loss of employment. Number two, medical expenses. And so we've already got the majority of Americans living paycheck to paycheck and healthcare costs are going up and healthcare costs are already one of the leading causes of bankruptcy. Reminds me of a viral post I saw recently since we actually recorded our last episode. And this post was from somebody who just had a liver transplant and they posted their bill from this liver transplant and it was like $380,000 or something like that. And their insurance, it showed the bill, it showed the insurance covered $2,500 or something like that. So it was this incredibly tiny amount that insurance had covered, said they were liable for the rest. One of the main fees on there was $180,000. Some of these numbers might be wrong, but it was in that realm for acquisition of body parts, basically. So acquiring the liver that they gave her. Her husband had donated the liver and he had his own medical costs. So he had his bills. They charged $180,000 to take his liver to her. I mean, it was just completely messed up, right? It should not cost a half million dollars or a third of a million dollars to have that done. And I haven't seen an update yet to find out if it was a billing 
issue an error in, in not charging the insurance more or whatever. But either way, it highlights how messed up the system is that they could get that wrong, send you a bill for $400,000. On the bill, this is hilarious, on the bill it said, amount you owe $380,000. And then it said, can't make the payment all at once? Don't worry, you can make monthly payments of (laughs) $38,000. Like it was this huge benefit to them. Just ridiculous. It makes me think of a neighbor of mine who he and his wife just had their second child. Their baby was born. But some tests were done and and they discovered that the baby has a very rare genetic disorder. And recently a cure has been developed. If the genetic disorder fits into a certain type of category and if you catch it quick enough and all the baby needed was one single shot, a certain, I don't know how many milliliters, but it was just one injection. And that one shot, that one injection cost over $1 million. Fortunately for them, it was basically all covered under their insurance. But when there's only one cure that exists, it's it's the one way to save your child. And the pharmaceutical company can charge really whatever they want because they they own that, right? They own a monopoly on it. Then as a patient, you're going to pay whatever it takes, even even if it means you're going to be in an extreme amount of debt for the rest of your life. Right. What parent is going to say, no, I won't save my child's life for whether, you know, it's a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or $50,000, whatever it is, they can't afford it. Who are they to say no, right? You've seen recently in the media, um, it's kind of phased out of mainstream media recently, but in the past couple of years, I feel like you've seen a lot about insulin prices shooting through the roof, as well as the cost of like EpiPens, stuff like that, that really at this point should be affordable. And yet the prices continue to increase and it's all just due to, like you said, pharmaceutical companies who are able to capitalize on it. So according to McKinsey and Company, they're a very large consultancy firm. They say the overall annual cost of healthcare could go up by between 125 and $200 billion after the pandemic, due primarily to the issues that you've just explained. And what's so interesting about this to me is that all of these costs have gone up to the end consumer, right? To the patients. And yet hospitals themselves are struggling right now with low revenue. You would think, oh, like costs are going up. Hospitals are just being greedy. There's more patients and they're charging the same amount or more. So they should be making more money. When in reality, hospitals are struggling with revenue. Now, some companies are making a ton of money, but most of those companies are the pharmaceutical companies, the medical device companies. I'm sure there are some hospitals that are doing very well. But for the most part, the healthcare industry saw a huge decrease in revenue during the pandemic. So elective surgeries were canceled. That was a big thing because so much money for hospitals comes from those elective surgeries. A lot of people stopped going to the doctors for their regular checkups. You know, they didn't want to catch COVID or maybe they were nervous about spreading COVID. Those staffing shortages created long wait times. So if it was in the ER, if someone knew like, normally I go to the ER for this, but I'm going to just try and fix it at home or suffer through it because I know if I go to the ER, I'm going to have a four hour or eight hour wait. Also, if they called a doctor and tried to set up an appointment for something, they might find that they had to wait a week or two weeks or a month to even get an appointment. And so they just wouldn't do it. 
So basically all of that meant that the hospital was not charging as much for all of these normal visits that, that they would do typically. Even through today, utilization of healthcare services is down far below what they expected it to be here a couple of years later. And to give some context, when you say that hospitals struggled during the pandemic and are still struggling, we're talking billions of dollars. 2020 was a pretty devastating year for many hospitals financially. It continued into 2021. It was challenging to find final numbers for 2021. But during the year, the estimates were that there would be $54 billion in net income lost in 2021 alone. And those were on the low end of some of the estimates. Some were up above $100 billion. More recently, an article that was published just two days ago said this. It says, according to research from the healthcare consultancy Kaufman Hall, 2022 has been the worst financial year for hospitals since the pandemic. And I'll just stop you right there for a minute because that's really interesting. You would think at, at this point, like hospitals would be recovering, that the worst financial year would have been 2020, then 2021 would have been a little better, and then 2022 even better. But you're saying this year has been the worst since the pandemic. Yeah, and some of that is because previous years, in 2020 and 2021, hospitals were receiving federal funding. The government was kind of helping bail them out, but a lot of that has dried up. And then you add on top of that the decreasing patient demand, like you mentioned, the cost of hiring those traveling workers. All of that has combined to make this a really devastating time for a lot of hospitals. Because of that, a lot of hospitals right now are cutting back their services. That same article from just two days ago says health systems must weigh the risks and benefits of cutting back or eliminating services. Understaffing could be a threat to patient safety, but so could a lack of access to services. And so it's kind of a lose-lose if they continue to provide all the services that they currently are. That's not sustainable. They're not making the money. They don't have the staffing. They can't really support that. But if they dwindle their services down, that's putting the general population at risk because they can't get the care they need in those areas. You know, it's so interesting. It's kind of this common thing that you hear in the prepping sphere. There's always this advice that they say, get any procedure done that you need now. Don't wait. Go get it done. You may not be able to get it done in the future. And then they also say, stay really fit, stay really healthy, take care of yourself so you don't have to rely on hospitals. And I think when you look at that at face value, kind of the immediate thought is, okay, they're saying that one day hospitals just aren't going to exist, so I should get the care now that I need. In reality, when you look at it the way that we're describing it here and the way that we're seeing things progress with the healthcare system and what you just described, Kellen, is those services one by one could start either disappearing, they could be harder to find, and when you do find them, they could be much more expensive. Or the quality of care that you receive might be worse, the wait times might be worse, insurance might not cover it. We're not talking about a complete disappearance or elimination of healthcare altogether. Your hospital may not cease to exist, but that hernia that bothers you every once in a while, you think maybe you should take care of, it's not a full-blown hernia yet, but you can feel that it's bothering you, or the you know, the doctor that told you that in the future you might need to take care of something like you just don't know what is and isn't going to be available as a specific service. 
what the costs for that service are and what quality of care you're going to receive. So you might as well take care of it now before it gets worse and before you're not able to receive that care. Now, in some cases, your hospital could just disappear. And the reason I say this is because there's a very specific example of this happening right now in Atlanta, Georgia. So I recently, uh, this is about a week ago, saw an article stating that the Wellstar Atlanta Medical Center is closing with extremely little notice. Um, the mayor of Atlanta and the government there was quite upset because they didn't receive a notice prior. This took them by surprise as well. Basically, the hospital just said, we're closing. We haven't made enough money to stay open. And that's that. This is a 55,000 patient hospital. I mean, that's how many people go to that hospital to receive care that are now going to have to find other hospitals. It's a nearly 500 bed hospital. So there are tons of patients currently there receiving care who are admitted to the hospital. They're going to have to be moved to different hospitals. Now, here's the thing. This is only, this big hospital is one of only two in Atlanta that are level one trauma centers. So you can basically say half of the level one trauma centers in Atlanta are gone pretty much overnight. The only other hospital there that's a level one is Grady Hospital. And one article that I read said this, Grady, which already runs over capacity daily, will see further strain after the closure, particularly to its emergency room, its administration said. So this hospital is already understaffed. They've got too many patients. And now the other, the one other hospital that exists in the area is closing down and they're going to be responsible for taking on so many of the patients. That hospital, Grady, accused Wellstar of having clearly prioritized profits over people, leaving 460 licensed hospital beds in the community empty and more than 120 patients per day having to seek emergency care elsewhere. Continuing from that article, it says Dr. Cecil Bennett, a doctor who trained and worked at Atlanta Medical Center, told CBS 46 that the closing will impact patient care throughout Metro Atlanta. We cannot afford to lose this facility. We just can't. Continuing later on, it says, in its statement announcing the news, Wellstar blamed decreasing revenue and increasing staff and supply costs for this decision. The company said it has sustained $107 million in losses at the facility in the past year and invested more than $350 million to support operating losses and capital improvements since 2016. So it's interesting that they, they note the amount of losses from the last year, but they also talk about losses going all the way back to 2016, which was before the pandemic even started. So revenue has been hurting for a long while. To me, that's pretty terrifying. I have a son who has asthma, and he gets sick pretty easily. And when he does get sick, oftentimes he really struggles to breathe. And so we have a nebulizer and we do these breathing treatments. But I remember on one occasion during the pandemic... He was really struggling to breathe, and yet we knew that we couldn't take him into the hospital because it was at a time when our local hospitals were at max capacity. And the panic that I felt, like the helplessness, it is hard to describe. And I imagine, you know, being in a really urgent medical situation in Atlanta now and feeling that same kind of thing. And if this one example that you've shared is any indication of a possible trend in the future then that gives me a lot of anxiety just about what people are going to have to go through, what I might have to go through here in the U.S. And, you know, Atlanta, this hospital is an interesting example because it's in a very metro area. 
But this has been happening over the last couple of years with increasing frequency to rural hospitals. Now, you don't hear about those as often because they're often smaller hospitals in smaller areas. We hear about this one because it's such a huge impact hospital. But when you think about all the rural areas that are losing their primary care facilities and the strain that it's putting on the other nearby hospitals, it's it's happening pretty widespread. One article did talk about how this hospital closing in Atlanta is likely the first of many to happen. The fact that, like you said, 2022 has been the worst year financially since the pandemic. There's no indication that 2023 will be better or 2024. And surely there are so many hospitals out there that are doing what this Atlanta hospital has been doing, which is continuing to invest in their losses, basically trying to cover the losses. They're possibly being subsidized, hoping that they can get out of it. But when they can't, they will continue to close. And again, in a positive feedback loop, it will continue to affect other nearby hospitals more, putting more strain on staff and and on the other areas. So moving on from that, one of those other areas that we haven't talked about is supply chain issues. I, I don't have a lot to talk about here. I think it's pretty apparent what's been happening throughout the wider economy regarding supply chains. We've seen all of the struggles and stresses of everything from obviously the toilet paper to cleaning supplies, to restaurants running out of straws or lids or to-go containers. And this is true as well of the medical system. And there are a couple different things to consider here. Some are that there has been a significant decrease in the supply of very critical things that, that are obviously critical. You know, during the pandemic, ventilators, for example, early on, when they were using those so heavily, medicines, personal protective equipment, was huge during the pandemic, but there's still a major issue in procuring those. Um, in 2021, 99% of hospitals reported issues with supply procurement. Now, while those are really obvious things, there are also some not so obvious things, right? Specific things that maybe we never think about not being in the medical system, certain types of vials, right? Or a certain type of container that holds the media in which cell cultures are grown in for medicines. You know, it's such a big industry that the smallest item, the smallest maybe obscure tool or part or whatever it is, if that's missing, it can really have an impact on an entire supply chain. Yeah, and I think there's two cases here. There's the case of supply chain issues for anticipated needs, normal care. And there's also supply chain issues when something unexpected comes up. The pandemic, for example, you know, average patients who need oxygen receive somewhere between two and six liters per minute. But COVID-19 patients needed up to 40 liters a minute. And so it was just one of these unexpected things. One major concern currently is that there's a dwindling of the national blood supply. Apparently 5 million Americans need blood transfusions each year. And just this year, at the beginning of the year, January 11th, 2022, the Red Cross declared a national blood crisis, and they activated an emergency appeal for blood donors on, on that same day. And they got, you know, some good response, but they're still not the, the level of supply that they need. In fact, just this week, the last couple of days, there has been a number of localized blood shortages, especially after Labor Day. They already only had maybe just enough without any sort of a excess or a buffer. But then oftentimes during a holiday, there's more of a need. There's, there's more incidents. 
Anyways, just as I was looking through, I saw news articles coming out of Alabama, out of Georgia, out of Tennessee, out of Hawaii, all just within this last week where localized areas were making a really big push to try to get people to donate blood because there is this general blood shortage. You know, one thing I saw that I thought was really interesting is that one article mentioned how much hoarding happens from hospitals when there's a crisis. You know, much like we saw people freaking out about toilet paper and creating a crisis. I mean, I, I don't know if you call toilet paper a shortage or crisis, but there was a while where it was impossible to get toilet paper. And in large part, that was due to people hoarding and taking as much as they possibly could. And hospitals have done the same thing with personal protective equipment, ventilators, medicine, all these things. And it leaves other hospitals without and creates a further shortage. And when you talk about a supply chain, there's obviously a number of different links in that chain. Sometimes we only think of it as like getting a certain product from one location to another and that that's where the issue is. But even in the development of a particular medical product, when something unprecedented rolls around, you think about all of the resources that were put in to create the COVID vaccine. And it was miraculous. The speed at which that was done. And yet think of how many millions of people died during that time. Sometimes we just get hit by a surprise and we don't have an immediate solution. I think a lot of hospitals have been very thoughtful in trying to create emergency plans. Generally speaking, hospitals are really resilient. But when, for example, you get a superstorm that comes through like we had this last year, a hurricane that makes its way up through multiple states with incredible amounts of flooding. There's power outages, as you would expect. That puts a huge strain on the healthcare system in that area. And as we've talked about, we're anticipating that there will be more and more of those things in the future. Well, one of those areas of emerging information and sort of quickly changing developments is that of long COVID. I have not a ton of knowledge on what the current expectations and studies are around what's happening with long COVID, but it does seem like this is a real potential issue for people's health long-term, but also the impact it's having and going to have on the hospital system. So at least 30% of people still have continuing symptoms even three months after getting diagnosed with COVID-19, and many of them are severe. And there's a ton of studies that are being done right now about COVID's impact on people long after they're first infected. For many people, symptoms of lung COVID also mask other types of diseases or illnesses. So, you know, if, if I have shortness of breath or fatigue or I get a fever, maybe I have a lack of taste or chest pain, on any random day, I would be pretty likely to be worried about a serious illness. I'd go into the doctor and have that checked out, right? But people who are used to feeling that now, because they've had long COVID, it's something that they haven't really been able to shake since they first got COVID, they may not realize that they're suffering from a stroke or a heart attack or any other illness. They think this is just the same old COVID stuff that hasn't gone away. And so those people are less likely to receive care, at least early on, furthering the complications later down the road. They say that long COVID could be a series of many different causes Things like organ damage, immune system response, even PTSD, or a chain reaction of those issues that can lead to nervous system issues and diabetes. 
I'll be interested to see more and more about these studies as they continue to come out. But even with the little bit of knowledge that we have and the very limited knowledge that I have on the topic, it does seem obvious and apparent that this could exacerbate the strain on the healthcare system. If 30% of people that have COVID continue to show symptoms for months and months afterward, and if many of those continue to have severe symptoms that require further hospitalization and issues, all while, like we've talked about, there's these tons of other issues in the healthcare system that are being exacerbated, it's just a further sort of weight on the system. And it does feel like there's room for anything added to that to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. As we mention all these things, it's clear that we're in a really dicey situation. Between last episode and this episode, when we consider the fact that in the U.S. we're spending outrageous amounts of money on healthcare, and yet the outcomes are worse than all these other developed nations. And you look at the ways that it's kind of failing, but then you consider all of these vulnerabilities that we've pointed out and the ways in which we're seeing a concerning trend in each one of those areas the staffing shortages and the supply chain issues, the individual financial issues with rising costs and the financial issues with hospitals. We've talked in the past about the increase in infectious diseases. We've talked about all of the concerns with increasing mental health issues, which we didn't even discuss in this episode. And it paints a really scary picture. I do think sometimes in the collapsed community, there are really alarming or alarmist statements that are made where somebody's like, the healthcare system is right on the brink of going over a cliff or whatever, right? That the electrical grid is so fragile and it's about to fail or the economy is just going to completely crash any day now. And the fact is there are measures in place and there are safeguards and there's some level of resiliency. But rather than seeing a sudden decimation of any one of these areas, we are continually seeing this pattern of gradual decline that's leading us to a pretty bleak future. Yeah, collapse is here and we're in it. It's going to be a bit of a journey. It's not falling off a cliff. It's sliding down the mountainside, smacking your head on every rock on the way down, right? All of these things that we talked about are going to have severe consequences on individuals' lives and on society as a whole. One of the measures that we have to see the impacts of these things is life expectancy. In the U.S., we are seeing the largest drop in life expectancy since World War II. Now, life expectancy dropped all over the world at the peak of the pandemic, but all wealthier developed nations have seen that begin to recover substantially, except for the USA and Israel. And while it's decreased for all races in the U.S., Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous people have seen the worst drops. So for them, it's been nearly a four-year decrease in life expectancy, which is wild. I mean, we're talking like it's different for each race, but some of them it was going from like 72 to 68. For white people, it's decreased around two and a half years. So still a substantial decrease, but not so much as for those in the Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous communities. So one of the authors of a report that was talking about how the U.S.'s life expectancy compares to other wealthy nations, like I just mentioned. Her name's Lauden Aaron. She's a senior fellow in the Health Policy Center at the Urban Institute. She says, The fact that we cannot translate our economic wealth into protecting our population and ensuring that everybody has a fair chance to live a long and healthy and productive life is a real failure. 
And she just hit really hard that like most countries that are in developed nations are able to rebound from this pandemic. They have increased life expectancy again. Things have more or less gone back to normal. However, in the U.S., the healthcare system has not been able to recover and we're continuing to see decreases in our life expectancy. The report says this, Even before the pandemic, people in the U.S. faced the opioid epidemic, gun violence, and higher chronic disease rates than people in other rich countries. Many of the same underlying factors are why the U.S. has failed to recover from COVID. Lack of health access and a robust public health care system exacerbated COVID-19's effects. And the lack of national coordination to address the pandemic and lower vaccination rates have also been a factor in outcomes being worse in the U.S. than other comparable countries. It also talked about how the U.S. prior to COVID-19 is one of the only countries to have seen even a slight blip in life expectancy. There was a time just prior to the pandemic where the U.S. life expectancy dropped by a month, which doesn't seem like much, but all other countries were on a consistent increase of a couple of months each year or something like that. So again, this just solidifies the fact that while Yes, the pandemic has had a huge impact on life expectancy losses. This was already in motion before things were already shaky. And the fact that it's not improving now shows that the healthcare system continues to be in a pretty dire situation. And at least at this moment, there doesn't appear to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.